the moment has arrived. I am Tom Dickinson, and you are currently listening to Season 1, Episode 6 of The Moment, a podcast where every week I talk to a different guest about a different moment from a different episode of Doctor Who. If you have been listening closely to this season of The Moment so far, you may have spotted that all five of our previous episodes are about the modern series of Doctor Who. But today we are taking you farther back than we have ever taken you before, into Doctor Who's classic series. But not that far back, all things considered, only as far back as the first serial in the last season of classic Doctor Who. It's 1989's Battlefield, starring Sylvester McCoy as the Seventh Doctor and Sophie Aldred as Ace. And Joy Piedmont of the Reality Bomb podcast has brought a moment that inspired some very strong, mixed feelings. I think that might also be a first for this show, a mixed feelings moment. Now, if you haven't seen the story, and since it's a classic serial, I'm guessing that's a somewhat larger segment of the listeners than usual, let me give you some context. The Seventh Doctor and Ace have been traveling together for a while now. This Doctor is an impish little man with a dopey grin that hides a multitude of dark secrets and hidden agendas. Ace is a teen rebel with a penchant for explosives and witty sarcasm. Battlefield sees the Doctor and Ace landing in a village in the English countryside to contend with the sorceress Morgane, aka Morgan Le Fay, from Arthurian legend, but also from another dimension. Along the way, they team up with the Doctor's old friend, the retired Brigadier from Unit, and his new friend, the new Brigadier from Unit, and one of King Arthur's knights who thinks the Doctor is Merlin, and he's almost certainly right, and if you're thinking, holy cow, that sounds like the most bonkers thing I've ever heard, I absolutely have to watch that, then you're kind of not wrong. Anyway, one of the standout characters from the story is Xiao Ying, a young woman from the village who Ace befriends in part one of the serial. In part three, the Doctor leaves Ace and Xiao Yang as he goes off to deal with plot stuff, and he tells Ace that the best way to protect herself from Morgane's sorcery is to draw a chalk circle on the ground and stay inside it. Ace is inside of a chalk circle to protect herself from Morgane with her friend Xiao Ying. Two of them are afraid and... This is stupid. They're starting to turn on each other. What did you call me? I said, this is stupid. Which... You're deaf or something. As an audience, you can kind of... No, you didn't. I heard you. You called me stupid. Tell is... I'm not a freak. Due to the magic of... I said, I'm not a freak. Whatever it is that Morgane is doing to them. I'm not stupid. And then it turns ugly. That's good, coming from a reject like you. And as it ramps up, she's about to follow the circle, and the last thing that Ace says is, you slanted yellow. She has clearly crossed the line at that point and realizes, oh crap, what am I doing? This is my friend I'm talking to. Someone's playing games with and then it just passes. They, the spell is broken. They hug each other. It's all over. And I've watched this, you know, recently, really recently. And it struck me so much because in all the classic Who that I've watched, um, the show doesn't really ever address racism so directly. And yet it fell short just a little bit of, without addressing what Ace said. They hug, but Ace never says sorry. <laughs> never says, oh, no, that was not me talking. Like, doesn't clarify. You're just meant to, like, instinctively know that Ace is a good person and wouldn't use, like, slurs against her her friend. And so it's this weird combination of the show doing so much and yet 
still not quite enough. I was trying to think if there's another example anywhere in Doctor Who of a character that we're supposed to like using a slur like that or or being so directly cruel in a targeted hate speech act. I, I can't think of anything. I mean, th- there aren't even very many examples of villains doing that. I can think of a few. Who, who let this creature in here? On your feet, girl, in the presence of your betters. But it's, it's really kind of unique in not just the classic series, but I, I can't think of anything in modern Who either. Nor can I, and that's why it sticks out to me so much. And... I kind of keep going back and forth in my head over whether or not the show is better for not addressing it, really, and just showing it. What are your thoughts on the uh, on the friendship between Ace and uh, Sho Young, right? Yes. So I that's how McCoy pronounces it. Sho Young. That's how um, you and Sho Young stay inside. Yeah, McCoy says it. I'm not quite entirely sure how it should be pronounced, and the problem is that with romanization of most Asian languages isn't entirely accurate, so I have no idea. I think that he could be right, but I also don't necessarily trust... Um, that the show even knew how her name was supposed to be pronounced. It's, it's kind of conspicuous that she doesn't introduce herself, and I don't think her name is even spoken aloud until pretty far into the second episode. That is correct, and <laughs> which leaves me suspicious, to say the least. Um, but I I love the friendship between the two of them, and I think it's um, you know an oft-repeated observation about Ace that everywhere she goes, she picks up a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and whether or not that's a romantic or platonic girlfriend up to the reader right but everywhere she goes she makes friends and they always happen to be young women i loved that in this case there is no reason for this character to be asian and yet she is and one thing that i don't know and i would love to research this a little bit is whether or not the character was actually written this way and if so why because it seems almost like unnecessary representation but in like the best possible way because the character doesn't need to be any particular race at all except for that one moment in the end when ace uses some racial slurs but even then like you could be any non-white race and still be called names um the friendship between them is so easy, and I think it's adorable that they bond over explosives. You know, I get the urge to bung half a kilo of TNT down the hole and bring it all up in one go. Now you're talking. Like, of all things, Ace can seem to make friends with anyone who shares her love of blowing stuff up. Yeah. Like, it doesn't take much for her. Um, but it seems like they also share, like, a, a similar rebellious streak. And, um... Gordon Bennett. I just adore when when the companion picks up their own companion for for a story. I think it adds a lot more depth and layer to the to the narrative. You mentioned that you kind of go back and forth with how you interpret that one scene, or not so much how you interpret it, but how you how you judge it. To what extent does the fact that it's Ace as opposed to any other companion, how much does that play into the way you weigh that? That's a good question. Um, knowing that it's Ace who's using these racialized slurs, I think that it works because she doesn't necessarily need to explain herself. Based on everything that you see of her um, up to that point, you can be confident that that's not the kind of person she is. Um, It's confirmed, I think, in the subsequent story in Ghostlight when she talks about her friend Manisha, whose um, home was... burnt out Manisha's flat. ...was firebombed. White kids firebombed it. Which is horrific. I didn't care anymore. So she appears to be a... I think you cared a lot, Ace. A person who does not necessarily have any sort of um, racial bias within her. I was so mad and I needed to get away. 
I don't know that you could say the same thing about um, other companions only because you just don't know as much about them in their lives. Ace is more in the modern companion mold in that you know a lot about her upbringing and what brings her to the ice world. I was doing this brilliant experiment to extract nitroglycerin from gelignite. This time storm blows up from nowhere, whisked and me up here. why she's traveling with the doctor and the things that she's interested in. So I think it works, but the problem is that even though you know those things about Ace, even like the most well-intentioned, liberal-minded people can use bad words when they're not thinking. And especially when people are frightened and in stressful situations. So that's why I just keep going back and forth on it because... It is missing that moment of her explicitly apologizing and saying, I didn't mean to say that or that wasn't me talking. Because in my experience, I think that anybody is capable of saying the wrong thing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think what does get said is someone's playing with our minds, which is very pointedly not an explicit, I'm sorry I said that thing I said. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of a brush off and kind of an explanation, but it's not like an acknowledgement of it, really. Yeah. You know, it's it's as she says that... that the spell kind of breaks. Mm. It's because that seemed to be the thing that, you know, both literally and figuratively caused her to cross the line. Yeah. She literally steps over the chalk circle and also just kind of snaps out of her own head in that moment. It is just strange that we don't get to see any kind of discussion about that moment subsequently. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's an argument to be made that the narrative has to move on. Yeah. At that point, you've been ramping up the tension. They're in this chalk circle that's supposed to protect them, and they're they're clearly not protected. Things have to keep moving at that point. So you can't really stop and have a conversation about, like, feelings. <laughs> and yet it needs it a little bit because um, otherwise – it just feels like this huge thing kind of hanging in the air. It's a great device in that it signals to you, as you said, she has clearly crossed the line at that point. This is when we know something is very wrong, right? But at the same time, I think it's a moment that maybe goes by a little too quickly. Just, I mean, by a hair. And, you know, would it be better off if there was just an apology? I think so. <laughs> I think that all it needed was just an explicit I'm sorry rather than a, oh, I think something's funny going on here. This apparently seems to be one of Morgan's tactics is to stoke paranoia. To to what extent do you think that does come from within them? And to what extent do you think it comes from an external force? I would say at least with Ace. You know what's going on, don't you? Yes. You always know. You just can't be bothered to tell anyone. She is constantly paranoid. And you're not telling me. Am I so stupid? And you can kind of understand why she'd have to be. She expresses her her fears and her emotions um, externally in in violent actions. like Suspended after I blew up the art room. Burning things down, setting off explosives. They couldn't understand how blowing up the art room was a creative act. But I think that all comes from this place of, like, deep paranoia and insecurity about herself, about what other people think of her. What's wrong with me? And about her place in the world. Why can't I stop hating her? Um, And it seems like she's had a really tough life. I've never had no mum and dad and I don't want no mum and dad. It's just me. All right. She hasn't necessarily felt secure or comfortable um, either in her family life or just in her neighborhood in general. I don't think it took much to get Ace to a point where she could turn on somebody. You know, we know her with the doctor as completely trusting and confident in in him. Complete faith. But she's not confident in herself. I don't think she's a weak person, but I think it's pretty easy. I would waste my time in her. 
Unless I had to use it somehow. No! To turn those insecurities on her and exploit the fears that I had to make you lose your belief you know, are, in me. are deep-seated within her. Teenage psychology. The thing that Xiaoyang knows to say to Ace, or maybe not she, but the thing that whatever evil spirit is taking over them knows to say to Ace that will get to her is to call her dumb and worthless and to specifically say the doctor doesn't want you you know like Hmm. to pick at that um that wound of her insecurities of feeling like she's not good enough and ace she's not really firing back at all you know she's just like well you're dumb (laughs) and Mm -hmm. no you're stupid until finally the one thing that she can go to is something racialized and i think it's really interesting that we get these pseudo companions and this happens in the modern series too where we don't really learn too much about them so um you know in that moment there is not much that we know about this girl ace wouldn't know what her deep insecurity was because she doesn't really know her and neither does the audience so of course it's going to be some sort of you know slur that's flung at her because that's the easy um mark to hit and i wonder in a story that had done more to develop that character um to know a little bit more about her other than the fact that she hangs out at this random like hotel bar (laughs) every now and then which again is like kind of mysterious um and sometimes helps the archaeologists dig impressive and i did have some help from xiaoyong there's nothing about her that ace could use against her there's no information there so of course it's going to be some sort of slur and in one way that's perfect because it does show that this is something completely out of step with the character but also if you start to dig down and think about it a little bit it's like oh how sad that we don't actually know anything about this girl other than these few things and that she's bonded with ace over explosives you know there's not really much there and yet i was still sitting in my living room cheering and celebrating to see somebody like anybody on the show that looked like me yeah (laughs) because like we're so starving for it that i just was ecstatic to see a single character you know that had lines that didn't necessarily need to be asian i can think of two others off the top of my head and those are all in the modern series so It's just such a rare moment that I feel like we take what we can get, but it does bear thinking about a little bit more in terms of, like, how well are these characters written? Do you think the modern series has gotten much better in that regard? (laughs) No. (laughs) I mean, we've got, I mean, in series 10, there's Bill's friend, um, who is in Knock Knock, who is Asian, and um, she's afraid and she runs out of the room because she doesn't want to, like, be trapped in. Cool. That's what I know about her. And I think she likes Little Mix. She likes music, Doctor. That's it? Quincy Jones. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I mean, I'm just specifically speaking about, like, East Asian representation here. Um, And then there's, in Series 9, you know, Captain Nagata. Sporting like a true whip. Oh, don't call me that. I don't call me that, Mom. Who is... A captain and she seems to be a little bit of a hard ass but young for the responsibility quite a baptism of fire i'm afraid again like the writing for a lot of the guest characters on the show is not always strong and it just so happens that the few times when 
there have been characters on the show who are East Asian. I mean, it's it's literally, you can count them on like one hand. Um, they are not written in such a way to suggest rich inner lives. <laughs> um, and so Doctor Who in its entire history just hasn't done a good job of it. I mean, it's not to say that they can never. It just hasn't necessarily happened yet. That's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah, on that depressing note. <laughs> Now, you mentioned that you just watched the story fairly recently. How did it come across your radar? So I've been watching Classic Who chronologically. Uh, oh, wow. And I actually finished, so... Oh, wow. Yeah, because this is nearly the end. Yeah, so uh, I had been watching in order um, since 2013, and I stalled out. It took me a long time for various reasons, but there were a couple moments within the 26 seasons that it just took me a really long time. Um, I was flying through McCoy, and um, I got to Battlefield, and I could not believe how modern it felt especially when you watch the show chronologically and you can really feel the weight of the show's history behind you when you're watching um it really kind of hits you like a ton of bricks it's it's a story that very rarely gets talked about you know and i didn't realize that until um only recently when i started talking about i could not i was you know yelling on twitter like why has no one told me about this amazing thing that exists with this pseudo companion who's asian why has no one told me about this? I'm dying over here. And everyone's just like, oh, yeah, Battlefield. <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah, that one that we forget about. I, I don't know what the reason is behind that. I think it hits me so strongly because of the issues of race and representation and also because it's a really, really fun, nostalgic story with the Brig and all the callbacks with him. There's a lot of female empowerment stuff, but the actual plot is a bit wonky <laughs> um and classic older school fans tend to enjoy stories that have tighter plotting than this one has yeah the plot is kind of messy but it's it's full of those little moments which kind of made me written because of the concept of the show that i'm doing there are a lot of individual moments within it where you can just kind of bask in the cheesy high action kef mccullough soundtrack it has a very intense feeling with um some rather theatrical acting as well it's a lot of fun i i actually like didn't realize how much i loved it until i just watched it i'm so glad you were able to re-experience it there's there's also that great moment where uh gene marsh and nicholas courtney have this how goes the day gorgeous scene together and i'm like i've had better oh my god it's brett vion and sarah kingdom <laughs> brett you're just the person we need. I doubt that. <laughs> it's so amazing. It's so amazing. And especially if, you, um, if you've seen Dalek's Master Plan. Yeah. And you know the history of those two actors and where they started with the show. Seeing them as older people. I mean, the show is so old. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's remarkable that you can have these two actors give wildly different performances because they are literally just at different stages in their life in these two different times. I wish you to know that I bear you no malice. I understand. But when we meet again, I shall kill you. Once they were antagonists as brother and sister, and now they are antagonists as a man of the military and a woman out of time. Like, it's it's kind of incredible that the show is able to do that. What what are your thoughts? I'm, I'm curious on the character of Brigadier Bambera. Brigadier Winifred Bambera. Winifred. We kind of jumped to another track within the episode. Oh, God. 
I love her. I'm so sad that the show did not continue so that we could get more of her. She is so fun. And I love that when she has that great intro with the Brigadier, you know, our Brigadier, Lethbridge Stewart. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, I am the Brigadier. And he says, So am I. And he doesn't negate her <laughs> being the Brigadier and then calls her Brigadier. And you're like, Oh, he's everything I wanted him to be, and she still gets to be a badass. It's amazing. You, you mentioned how Xiao Ying, that's it, she doesn't need to be for any reason in the script. She doesn't need to be any particular race. The same is kind of true of Brigadier Bambera. Mm. And, and it's it's because of that that I kind of err on the side of thinking they probably did it quite intentionally uh, in terms of writing a character who is Asian. I mean, like, unit in general seems to be more diverse in terms of at least the accents. ATC Docklands, this is uniform November 9-0. That you hear during this story, as, a, as opposed to any other unit story I can think of. That's true. And there's even um, one moment where somebody explicitly says, You're not English, are you? And the soldier who's speaking just says, No, sir. If you please get into the vehicle. No. <laughs> like... No, I'm not. I mean, it is the Unified Intelligence Task Force. So, right, like, they don't need to all be English. And it doesn't necessarily need that diversity um, for the story. Like, thematically, it's not telling a story where those kinds of values are reflected. Not to say that I think it's unnecessary. I think I'm just so baffled because it's such an outlier. Well, I I think there's an interesting tension, at least, with the, like, sheer... Englishness of the mythology that's used as the basis for the plot. Why, the answer to Excalibur's call. Time when Arthur rises to lead the Britons to war. Mm. Much like, you know, you have a black woman who inherits the legacy of Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. It, it kind of, it's a larger group of people who are kind of invited to tramp all over the English uh, countryside and, and engage in epic battles with terms like Excalibur and uh, and Morgane thrown about. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you have that great part where... What are you doing in the list? Emergence from the lake. <laughs> with her sword. That's what I said, Shakespeare. Where's the doctor? Yes. In I just can't stop thinking about the fact that this character existed in the show in the late 80s and we don't get it again until, I don't know, was that 2016 series? Hmm, yeah. I don't know what the answer is. I think, you know, the answer to that question is probably multifaceted and complex and something that... As an American, I can't even begin to address because the show is British. But it seems to me that because of what I know of the modern show, this particular moment has much more of an impact on me because I know what's to come. And I know that we don't get another character like this for so long into the modern series. And it hadn't happened up to that point. And it takes a really long time for it to happen since. And I would argue there really hasn't been another character like her. And it's a little sad, um, but also makes me relish her and the story and that moment even more. What kind of hope do you have for that changing based on, you know, what you know about Chris Chibnall and what little we know about what he has planned for the next era of the show? Well, I'm encouraged to see that the companions or the the friends of the Doctor, as the press materials insist on calling these actors, um, the friends of the Doctor seem to be um, people of color, um, with the exception of Bradley Walsh. So that's exciting to see, um, because I think that that opens the door for stories that include people who are not white. Um, I think you saw that with Bill um, and a lot of the stories that kind of accompanied her, which is encouraging. I mean, I think the big thing for me right now is 
I don't necessarily want more representation on screen until there's more representation behind the camera. Because in the 55 years of the show, there have only been two people of color to direct. You know, that's Warris Hussein right at the very beginning. And we've now had Wayne Yip direct in Series 10. Who, I, who is now confirmed to be coming back, I believe. Thank goodness. And he's great. He is a brilliant visual stylist, and so I'm excited for him. Um, there have been no people of color to write for the show yeah. at all. And it just seems to me like we're not going to get rich characters or interesting people until we get more people behind the screen doing the writing, crafting the stories, being a part of those conversations. Um, so I'm really hopeful that we're moving in the right direction. I think that um, Chibnall's hiring of Sagan Akinola mm. speaks to some promising developments in the creative team. And we'll see. I I hope it's moving in a more inclusive direction. I think that we're at a moment now where it's pretty clear that the fandom is not exclusively cishet white men. <laughs> and I think that the show would do well to reflect the demographics of the actual audience. Yeah, and it's no longer solely a British audience. So although the, the production apparatus that makes the show has to contend with the particular problems of, of being a British show and the challenges that, that you face in that environment, it also kind of has a responsibility to address a global audience. Yeah. There's such a huge opportunity in the casting of Jodie Whittaker um, to open the doors even wider. And um, I think we've seen some evidence from Chibnall that he's willing to do that. Um, and, you know, the hope is that the proof is in the pudding, like that the, that the show reflects high quality because you have more voices um, in the making of it. That's all for the moment this week. Thanks to Joy Piedmont, who you can follow on Twitter at inquiringjoy, all one word. Joy is a co-producer on the seriously excellent Reality Bomb podcast, which, if you like Doctor Who, you should be listening to. Among other things, in the most recent episode of Reality Bomb, you can hear Joy talk a little bit more about her pilgrimage to watch all of classic Doctor Who in chronological order, as briefly mentioned in this episode of The Moment. By the way, Joy and I spoke about a month ago, and while there still hasn't been a great deal of news about the specific writers and directors who've been working on Doctor Who's 11th series, a few tidbits were dropped, and we know now that for the first time in the 55-year history of Doctor Who, there will be at least one writer of color contributing a script. Well, it's about time. Show notes at themomentpod.com, Twitter at themomentpod, you know what to do. Also, if you like the show, tell a friend. How about your friend, Caitlin? I bet you know a Caitlin who likes Doctor Who and listens to podcasts. Send her our way. I'm Tom Dickinson, and I'll be back in a moment.